Right. Um, so, skimming for a better world through the lens of scripture feels a little bit um, like an open goal to me, to be honest. Um, when I read scripture, I kind of see the whole arc of it, the whole trajectory that this book takes us on is from a world to a better one. Like, like, like the end of the story is the fullness and the beauty of God's creation being realised and us all playing a part in that. So the idea of trying to explain um, how there's like a scriptural mandate for scheming for a better world feels, um, feels really obvious. So maybe I should just leave it there. Um, but right from the start of the, um, of the story of God's people, God is marking them separate. He is setting them apart in order to show them that another world is possible. So the Jewish people trace their story mainly back to this guy called Abraham. And Abraham was living in this world where everything was kind of set the way it was. You lived in one place till you died. And the first thing Abraham, God does, is he calls Abraham to go and live somewhere else. He, taught, he calls them to go, to take, to leave where he was living and to go and live somewhere else. Right at the start of the story of God's people, God is telling them that another world is possible, that it's possible to break out of the cycle that we've been in, that, that, that there is far more than we can possibly imagine. And this is a trend that continues over and over again in Scripture. So even the stuff in the Old Testament that we might now look at as old hat or even kind of um, primitive end up, if you look at them in the context, end up being radical leaps forward. So the Ten Commandments in their day offered this radically new way of living. Jesus's, the Beatitudes that Jesus talks about at the start of his ministry completely turned people's understanding of the kingdom of God on their head. At various moments throughout scripture, God prompts his people and says another world is possible. Now, much to our kind of like modern frustrations, this doesn't happen all at once. God doesn't move people from the start of the story straight to the end of the story. If you've ever tried to change someone's mind, you know you could probably understand the reason before that. If consciousness is kind of set in, if everyone is stuck to living in a certain cycle and believing in a certain way, you can't just change that overnight. Consciousness doesn't necessarily flip, consciousness is more likely to evolve. So you can't just march in and say that one era is over and another era has begun. Instead, you embed yourself in that culture and you slowly began to transform people. You speak in the language they speak, in the forms they're accustomed to, and gradually introduce, introduce new ideas step by step by step. And that is the arc of scheming for a better world that we see in Scripture. What we see is God meeting people where they're at and taking them on one more stage. So when God meets his people at E, he takes them to F. When he meets them at L, he takes them to M, and so on, and so on. Rob Bell has this way of describing this process that I find quite helpful. The idea that God has been moving his people forward one click at a time. So the Ten Commandments, click. Love your neighbour, click. The Reformation, click. Abolishing the slave trade, Click. Gay rights. Click. Click by click by click by click. God is moving his people forward. You could look at scripture as the story of humanity's interaction with divine and the, that interaction pulling humanity forward to a better way and to a better world. So the thing that I'm struck by when I think about that arc of scripture is why we see the end of the Bible is the end of that journey, is if the trajectory like throughout the Bible goes up like this, and then they hit like a print deadline, so they're just like, right, we'll leave it there for now. 
but like the whole of God's, in, this isn't, we can't limit God's interaction with humanity just to a book that finished being written 2,000 years ago. And so if that book tells the history of God's interaction with humanity, and there was a clear arc upwards towards a better world, then that arc continues once the book has gone to press, once, we, once the physical pages are being written. God continues to interact with humanity. We continue to meet the divine. He continues to move us forward. And that might mean asking some difficult questions. You know, scheming for a better world means that actually we have to reject things that are part of our current and former world. I was chatting to someone about this recently, um, and um, kind of being embedded in uh, kind of conservative evangelical subculture at work means that um, you went, I end up arguing with people uh, quite a lot. And um, one of the things that people often say, which I, and I think there's a certain amount of weight to it, is that well, if we're going to change stuff now, if we're going to, if you're, if if you're saying that God is moving us forward to a better world now, then you have to acknowledge that the church has been wrong for two thousand years, and that can feel like what a painful thing to do. But yeah, I think sometimes we do have to admit where Christian tradition has gone wrong. The stuff they sorted out, the Reformation, that that got rid of a gross skewing of God's call on His people. The slave trade was abhorrent. When Jesus talks about getting rid of the eye-for-an-eye justice system. He's moving people on from a primitive form of justice to a newer one. God is constantly moving his people forward. And he doesn't just ask us to live in that world, he asks us to imagine what that new world might look like. Um, And Jesus gives us a mandate to do this. So in Matthew, uh, Jesus says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This binding and loosing term was like a technical rabbinical term that the rabbis would have used at the time. So a rabbi, um, you know, kind of like Jesus was um, during his time on earth, a Jewish teacher, would have walked around and they would have gone around saying that they had a new interpretation of the Torah that they wanted to share. So they'd read out a passage from a scroll and they might say something like, you have heard it said that this means this, but I tell you today, actually there is this. And this process, this ongoing Refinement, this ongoing reinterpretation of what God's word meant for us today was called binding and loosing. Stuff that you allow and stuff that you forbid. And so here in this passage, Jesus is giving his followers the authority to reinterpret scripture, to continue binding and loosing, to say, you have heard it said this, but today I tell you this. The former world looked like this, but I tell you a better world can look like this. And actually, we see so much of that in Jesus' ministry. So much of Jesus' ministry seems to me that he's going around and just saying, what if it didn't have to be like this? What, what if there was a better way? What if you didn't stone that woman? What if you included this group of people? What if that guy had a second chance? What if we didn't write off that group of people? The ministry of Jesus is all about asking questions about our current world to move us on to a better world. The biblical narrative constantly places God ahead of his or her people, calling them forward, (laughs) pointing out the areas they need to be in. So why then, when we're seeking inspiration of what our world should look like, do we spend so much time looking backwards rather than forwards? When we're called to look forward, to take part in and to dream about the restoration of all things, about the renewal of all things, set in motion by the resurrection of Jesus. 
that that resurrection of Jesus is then followed up by us to scheme for this better world. The resurrection doesn't bring the new world right then this moment, but it sets things into motion, it sets a cycle, it sets a pattern that we're then called to follow out. And that's really important because there's, it feels like when I was growing up, and maybe this had just been like a trend in the last 15 years, but there was a lot of kind of Christian teaching, especially around salvation, that the whole point of Jesus was he came to meet people to go off and send them somewhere else. But actually, you read the Bible, and it is an affirmation of the world we live in. It is an affirmation of rocks and plants and seas and winds and youth centres and jazz clubs and terrible-looking car parks. All the things that are like physical and real in our everyday life, the Bible affirms them. And the Bible calls us to take part in the renewing of all of those things, so that when we get to the end of the story, there is restoration and there is wholeness. We're called to take part in scheming of a better world. And what happens here, time and time again, is God doesn't just do that himself. But God calls his people to take part in that process. God specifically calls chosen people, not, well, not chosen people, let's not get into that. God calls his people, people that have chosen to follow him, to scheme for a better world. There is a specific invite on the people of God to make this world a better place. And I think, I think as a church, in like the widest possible sense, we offer something that the rest of the world can't. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. Like, obviously this week, news-wise, has been dominated politically. Um, and I'm, I say that, and, and I, I say this next bit as someone who quite likes politics and gets it and is passionate about it. Obviously not as much as many people in this church, but like, get really into elections, certainly. Like, especially in a, in a summer when there aren't any like, major football tournaments, I feel I had to treat the general election like a World Cup. Like, you know, read all the previews, put a wall chart up, got a sticker album. All that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, I, like I, I, I mean, politics can be an amazing force for good, but I guess there's this danger that we end up treating politics as just like a vessel to put all our hopes for a better world in and hope that politics then heads off in a direction loosely marked better and that we can kind of, we almost like devolve power to politics away from ourselves and we don't take responsibility for the role we've got to play in scheming for a better world. Because, I don't know, politics just feels like it can never get the best pic- the whole picture. There are areas for church or other people doing stuff with a grassroots approach can reach that politicians can't. You look at stuff like Make Lunch or, or, or Azalea and they are doing amazing things in this community and all around the country and they haven't been started off by people in Westminster sitting around the table, they've been started off by people in churches seeing a need and deciding to do something about it. People in churches sitting around scheming for a better world. And even in the Bible, it, it's quite clear that God doesn't see the plan for the restoration of all things as coming through political leaders. So in 1 Samuel, um, the people of God, the Israelites at the time, um, see all the nations around them with a king, and they say, oh, we'd quite like a king, let's get a king, a king will sort us out. The people of God are willing to put all their hope in one person, in one political leader, to cure themselves of all their ills and kind of devolve responsibility from actually caring about the world they live in. And God's really clear. God's like, well, actually, I don't think this is the best. I don't think this is the way that I called from that, to follow that out. And what's really interesting about that is, like, obviously the Bible is written in hindsight. So the person who's writing Samuel, um, which I don't think is Samuel, 
Probably, maybe? I don't know. Didn't Samuel die before the end of Sam, the two, both Samuel books? So probably not him. Um, he, like, he's writing in hindsight, so whoever's writing this book is kind of acknowledging, um, yeah, that, that was a mistake, wasn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like, if you were writing a history, and you, at the time people have been uneasy about having a king, and they felt maybe that was God, but they did it anyway... If the, if the lineage of kings up until the point that you're writing a story had gone swimmingly, you probably wouldn't include it. You'd probably be like, yeah, God told us to have a king, we've got a king, that worked out well. But clearly, like, even in the moment, even once kings are beginning to take more and more power in Israel, people realise this isn't what God was calling us to. God knows that his people have something specific and exciting to bring to the renewal of all things. Now, I'm going to get into some specific examples um, of what scheming for a better world might mean um, and what a model for that might look like. But I, there's a quite an important caveat that I feel we need to add. Um, scheming for a better world isn't necessarily all about activism and doing stuff. I think there's a danger that when we talk about stuff like this, this feels really draining and feels really tiring and like almost like a guilt trip, like, oh, why aren't I doing more? Why am I not starting initiatives <laughs> and stuff like that? Like when God calls Israel Israelites, or when Jesus calls his disciples, he doesn't tell them to initiate a startup. They don't crowdfund. They don't work in nice, new, open-plan offices. Shout out to him and next door, obviously. But like, that's not God's call on his people. God's call on his people to bring about, to scheme for a better world, is to live differently is to model something to the rest of the world. It's about, it's about showing a prophetic imagination about, a new world, what, about what a new world might look like, what the future could be, and inviting the rest of the world to join in with that. And like sometimes that will involve actually doing stuff and starting stuff, but that's not the call the whole time. That's not the call on all of us. So some of us were just called to live differently and show the world a better way. So please don't like, go away this morning being like, oh, balls. And he's going, start something. Don't. Unless God's calling you to. In which case, do. Um, and we kind of see that in the um, early church in Acts. In Acts 2, it, um, so Acts 2, Jesus has, uh, he's gone up to heaven, or disappeared, and uh, they've just had the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit's come down, met with loads of people. Um, and so this early church, this early community of four people following Jesus who called themselves away are beginning to like huddled together to create something and this is what um, Act says about um, I guess the early start of that the early beginnings of that movement it says they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles all the believers were together and had everything in common they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord added to the, these, this early church's number daily, but they didn't do that because they started some kind of project. They didn't set up a youth group. They didn't like have an outreach event. The early church just lived a different way and invited people to join in. And actually, this tells us something else here, in that whenever God calls people to model a better world, to scheme for a better world, he doesn't call anyone really to do it on their own. So the Israelites were a people group called to 
to live differently, to model something to the rest of the world. The early church were a people group who modeled something differently to the rest of the world. Abraham, right at the start of the story, when he's called to move somewhere else to do something differently, he's called to go with his whole family, with uncles and aunts and nephews and cousins. God is not calling us to do this on our own. He calls us to do it in his in community. We're expected to work this out as a people. So, um, so what... What does it mean and what can it look like to scheme for a better world? Um, like I said, I kind of am uh, embedded somewhat in evangelical subculture. So I've got myself uh, three Ds of... Uh, the clicker's not working. That's a shame. Uh, I've got three Ds of scheme for a better world. What does this say? Oh. Low disk space. It's all right. There you go. The three Ds of dreaming for a better world. Dissatisfaction, dreaming and doing. It's almost like a, a real talk. Um, so dissatisfaction, I've, to scheme for a, better world, for a better world, you've got to be dissatisfied with the status quo. You've got to spot a problem. And I kind of think um, sometimes we give the dissatisfaction stage of scheming for a, bit, for a better world a bit of a short shrift. There's kind of, um, particularly aimed at, I think, towards young people, there's a bit of patronising about, um, you don't hear the word so much, now, but certainly a couple of years ago, you heard a lot of people talk about like slacktivism, this idea that people just moaned a lot on social media about stuff that wasn't wrong, but refused to really offer an alternative. And obviously, you know, dissatisfaction here is the start of a process. But I think to write off people being dissatisfied as just moaning and not really willing to contribute anything kind of misses the really important role that dissatisfaction and discontent has to play in the process of scheming for a better world. When I think about um, ways I've got involved in the past, um, the first political protest I ever went, protest I ever went on, um, well, first protest I ever went on uh, was because I fancied a girl who was going on a protest. Um, but, and, and, yeah. Uh, but, and, 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 so... And that, but that was also just born out of a sense of dissatisfaction and that we went on this protest as if to say this, what's going on and it was, it was um, around the time the Make Poverty History stuff but I don't think it wasn't specifically a Make Poverty History thing but it was a like we're not satisfied with the way the government chooses to interact with the rest of the world and we want something done. There was dissatisfaction there and that led to the government making promises but it began with a moment of dissatisfaction. Um, a couple of years ago um, yeah I guess fairly close to around this time, two years ago actually, um, the uh, headlines were dominated by um, scenes of uh, refugees fleeing, the scenes of the camp in Calais, um, those, those stuff that we'll all be so familiar with. Um, and I got, um, I just got really annoyed about stuff. I, I remember particularly there was uh, one morning where um, a number of refugees had died in the Channel Tunnel overnight trying to get... Um, flee from France to the UK. And uh, I remember the headline that really annoyed me was this story about David Cameron expressing great sorrow for holidaymakers who had been affected by their train being late. And uh, I, I specifically remember getting really, really wound up about it um, because I am a person who tends to live at the dissatisfaction stage of this. Fortunately, I have a wife who is constantly dragging me down from this stage she wanting to do something about it. So I'm there moaning about it, and Helen just goes, well, why don't you do something about that then? And I think in order for us to dream to a better world in this community, we need a mixture of all these people. We need people who will get angry at the way the world is, and then we need people who will say, well, 
Jamie, shut up and do something about it then. So me and some friends and Helen ended up going across to Calais and then we were able to raise some money through work and we did loads of cool stuff. But that's only because there was some initial dissatisfaction at the way the world was. But after dissatisfaction then, you get dreaming. And this perhaps is the exciting bit, when you begin to dream of the better world. You might do this in community, through talking to people, through beginning to dream a little bit. This is also where we can allow God to speak and where we can allow God to speak to us about what that better world may look like and how we might get there. Um, and then the doing part. We're dissatisfied about something. We can dream that a better world is possible, and then we do something about it. And like I said, this might be activism, this might be starting something, or it could just be reorientating ourselves as a community towards trying to model something different to the rest of the world. But the key is that all of these stages are built on the other. So your doing is built on what you dreamt about and what you're dissatisfied about. Because otherwise you're just doing stuff for the sake of it. Um, as this is kind of the scripture week, I should probably ground this in some scripture a little bit. Um, and I haven't just plucked these three things out of the air. So I want to give two examples, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament, about what this journey towards dreaming for a better world looks like when grounded in scripture. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is the uh, justice system in the desert. So God's people have um, they come out of Egypt and um, they are forming the start of this new community and they've kind of got no rules, they've got no real plan for what justice looks like there and it's probably a bit, um, it probably feels a little bit like anarchy in that if someone wrongs you there's no rule for what a fair or just punishment should be and so there is something wrong there is dissatisfaction because this system isn't the way it should be. And so God, there is dreaming in this. God speaks to his people and says, fine, if someone wrongs you in this way, this is what they have to do to make up to it. The, the eye for an eye that, we, that Jesus later writes off, and we'll get to that in a sec, but the eye for an eye thing is radical in terms of taking a system that was complete anarchy and framing it in a way that actually the punishment matched the crime. So there was dissatisfaction. There was something that wasn't the way it should be. There was dreaming, there was God speaking to that, and then the community lived that out in a different way. And of course, we see in the, Old Te- in the New Testament when Jesus comes, you have heard it, he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I tell you, turn the other cheek. And what we see there is constantly God moving his people forward. So perhaps at this, at this moment of their kind of um, steps towards a more just society, they might be at point D and God has moved them on to E. And then later on, Jesus turns up and goes, you've heard it said this way, but actually there is a better way of doing this and I'm going to move you on to the next step. Um, in the uh, New Testament, um, there is a similar process of things that we see happening. And this is the one that I would say, out of everything in Scripture, I am most grateful for. Because I like two things. I like bacon, and I like all of my penis. Um, <laughs> like, so... It's probably give some context. Um, like, so, in this early church that I talked about um, earlier on, um, that was kind of coming out of this Jewish tradition, and in the Jewish tradition... I wrote that part very late at night. Um, in the Jewish tradition, um, like to, to mark yourself as kind of being like set apart for God, you were circumcised. That is how that is a, a signifier of what the Jewish people meant. But then, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he kind of blows all that out of the water because he tells people to go to the end of the earth, to go beyond our Jewish circles, in order to let people know and invite them to follow him. So clearly, so, so then in the early church, 
there was a bit of a debate, basically, because Julius had come to offer something new. He, what, he was kind of, clearly, there was a slight divergence from the traditional Jewish religion. So the early Jesus followers, who themselves were pretty much all Jewish, had to have a conversation about, do we expect Gentiles, which was their word for everyone who wasn't outside, who was outside of the kind of Jewish customs, and, and, uh, and kind of ethnic background, um, do we expect people from that background to, to, to live in exactly the same way that we do? Are we... <laughs> Gentiles sounds like gent gentle appropriately. Do you know what I mean? Like, are we expecting them to do something? Are we expecting Gentiles to do something with their genitals? Are we expecting them to, to live in exactly the kind of way that we did? So there was dissatisfaction. There was a question there about what this should look like, what this better world might look like. And it was into this that there was quite literally a dream. God met with Peter in a trance and basically showed him like a table full of meat. That, um, which included pork, which previously the Jewish religion had said, you can't touch that, that's not for you to eat. And so Peter kind of gets through this dream that the call, the call to follow Jesus and this new way of life that Jesus is offering isn't based on the old one. And then the early Jesus followers realise that this is what God's called them to do, so they do it, and they stop calling people to live in this way. So there was a call to a better world, because there was dissatisfaction, there was dreaming, and there is doing and it's really important that we keep all three of these things in balance. Because if you don't discover a problem, if there's not dissatisfaction to begin with, you're just scheming or, active or doing activism or just living a different way for the sake of it, kind of to make yourself feel better. If you don't dream, you end up just working in your own strength, either on your own, or you just become reactive and shallow. You don't even get to the doing part because you could, might be running against the status quo. Um, you're dissatisfied and you want to do something about it, but there's no dream, there's no prophetic insight into what God might be calling us to. I'm reminded of a quote um, when I think about what happens if we don't dream. Um, the idea that protest is good, but alternative is better. And so if you go from dissatisfaction straight to doing, you just end up protesting and not really offering another alternative. There's no scheming for a better world there. There's just rallying against the old world. So if, you, so if there's no dissatisfaction, you're doing it for no reason at all. If there's no dreaming, you're just rallying against an old world. And if you don't do anything about it, you just build yourself up into a frenzy to kind of feel good about yourself with no real outcome. It's just basically like political masturbation, for want of a better phrase. Like you're just kind of doing all this stuff in your own strength and you're dissatisfied and you're dreaming of something better and then there's no real outcome for it. Um, I want to end with a, uh, a story about Moses. Moses was... Um, in Deuteronomy 34, where... Um, this is Moses... Uh, well, I, uh, this is Moses. This is Charlton Heston playing Moses. Um, and in Exodus 34, when it describes the death of Moses, um, it says this. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The word for strength in Hebrew was leho, which apparently, I'm led to believe, um, meant moisture. So he still died, he still had his moisture left in him. Other translations say, nor had his natural force abated, or he still had his vigour. So it kind of seems that the verse about the death of Moses is basically saying, like, he still had it in him. He was basically saying, old man Moses, he died, but he was still capable of new life, if you get what I mean. Which seems a very odd way to describe perhaps the greatest leader Israel's seen by talking about kind of his potency at his last moment. So you've got to ask yourself why they talked about this. One, for a laugh, possibly. 
two, Moses insisted on it. So he went, guys, like when you write about me dying, say that I was still good. Say that I was still able to, you know. I want, the, I want to have a reputation. I really hope it's that one, but I think probably there's something more going on here. So actually, when we talk about Moses' potency or whatever phrase you want to use, what we're really saying here, what this verse might really be saying is actually even in his dying moments, Moses was still capable of new life. Even right at the end, Moses, who walked with the Lord his whole life, had the potential for something new, had the potential to dream of a better way. Even in his last moments, Moses was capable of scheming for a better world. And I kind of think that that, I'd, I'd kind of love that to be said of me when I die. Obviously, you know. Um, you know, but actually I want to live my whole life dreaming that another world is possible. And I think it's really easy, perhaps as we get older, to, um, it's really easy to like get jaded and cynical about the world and believe that actually things can't change. And that, I think, is why the story of the Bible is so radical. That's why the fact that it starts with Abraham, a man who is in his 80s, being called to move and live somewhere else, is so powerful. Right throughout scripture, God is calling people to break out of their cycles, to say that another world is possible, and to scheme for a better world. And I, and I kind of think the only way to stop ourselves being jaded and to imagine that actually this, that there is no way to break out of cycles, and that this is all there is, is to be constantly reminded that the arc of scripture, the trajectory that the Bible takes us on, is towards a better world. Um, so what I want us to do is just to... Um, I kind of want to just leave some space now um, for dissatisfaction. Um, I, I think what might be quite nice to do is just to get into groups and maybe just like talk a little bit about what is it in the world that like angers you and frustrates you at the moment. And almost maybe just give everyone a minute just to like vent their spleens a little bit and actually say the world is like this and it frustrates me and it annoys me and sometimes I actually can't believe that this will ever get better and we as a community can support each other on this journey and say that another world is possible and maybe these conversations go nowhere maybe they are just a moment of dissatisfaction for us to get stuff off our chest and for us just to feel that actually there are people who feel this frustration with us maybe these conversations can lead to us dreaming maybe these conversations can lead to us modelling a new way of living but actually just, in the, just for the start right now let's just start by allowing ourselves some kind of divine discontent about the way the world is, and then we'll see where that goes. So um, maybe get into groups of four or five, and yeah, just kind of take a minute just to get angry or annoyed about something, and then we'll close up.